Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Fifth of August, Thursday. High in a tree, a blackbird sings into the night. A river of notes pours into the cabin. There are no stars, just music. We're all back. I hope you're well. And it's so good to be with you again. Thanks for dropping in and welcome to the Narrowboat 506812, narrowcasting beneath that moonless, brusque August night sky. And so the sun has set, for good or bad, on another day. And the stillness of night softly envelops a busy world. The kettle's on. Please make yourself comfortable and let's just sit back and enjoy the nightfall on these wind-ruffled still waters. In some ways it feels like an age since we were together sitting here, navigating in our own ways through the dark. But in others it seems like it was just a short time ago. But we had a lovely break off-grid, offline, and it's been, for me, surprisingly difficult to get back online. And this last week has experienced the predictable busyness of catching up with work, which has inevitably taken up a lot of my time and headspace. But our time together, locking out the world, was special and much-needed and we accomplished a lot and experienced a lot and we learned a lot and made some precious memories revisiting old haunts and exploring new places. And What more can you want from a holiday? Although we began with a, a tentative, at least, plan of where we were going to go, the first week was so blooming hot we decided to just flow with the elements and rather try to battle against them and so basically we were just cruising quite early and finding a shady spot to tie up, going from one big shady tree to the next. And we stayed a few days in our favourite spot just above Preston Baggett. But more on that in the later episode. And so we really just zigzagged around on the Grand Union and the Stratford Canals a trip down to Hatton flight to pick up a boat hook that Kevin, the manager of the lovely little tea room there, had managed to get for us. And by the way, if you are in that area of around Hatton flight, just outside Warwick, please do give it a visit. You, you won't be disappointed. And as the second week began, the air got heavy and lethargic with that sticky heat. And then it finally broke in fantastic. 
fantastic cataracts of thundering and drumming rain and hail that just bounced off the cabin roof and cratered the water. Heading down south from Kingswood Junction, it fell so heavily it was like driving through liquid bead curtains. Throughout this deluge, poor Donna was towpath slogging between the locks, which, of course, it just had to be all against us at the time. Well, I just could stand at the tiller and enjoy the beat of the rain. And that pure watery light that you get when the sun turns the rain alternatively black with flashes of diamonds and the foliage of the bankside trees dipping even lower and brushing my face and hands and the canal water was as warm as a bath and slipping cold wet hands into it was like putting on a pair of fleecy mittens and that night Donna lit the stove to dry us all out again and we watched the rain peppering the water and the glistening blades of the reeds sway and bend as wood smoke from our chimney curled up through the weeping, dripping sky. And the cooler weather has remained with us and so have the towering skies filled with anvil clouds and thunder. In fact, earlier tonight, we had that strange event of rainless thunder, that almost continuous hollow rumbling, like the fire of heavy ordnance from a distant artillery range. We probably shouldn't be too surprised at the weather, as in his chapter on August, Miles Hadfield warns us that Wet and windy weather is by no means uncommon in early August. Indeed, North Country farmers by tradition await the Lammas floods. Buchan, aha, good old Buchan. Buchan places his fifth cold spell as lasting from the 6th to the 11th. So that perhaps explains also a comment by Wayne from the MV1 of his. Hey there, Wayne who observed on a Twitter post, and I think it was to Cruising the Cut, David Johns, that the weather during the week of his birthday is usually rubbish. By the way, Wayne and Amanda, I am so sorry that the boat seems to have fallen through and best of luck in finding another one. And happy birthday to you, uh, whenever it was. And love to Amanda and Wilma. But getting back to Hadfield, he then goes on to reassure us that Buchan then finds that towards the middle of August, from the 12th to the 15th, there's usually the recurrence of high temperatures. And he gives this as his second hot spell. Unsurprisingly, as now the sea temperatures are uh, rising at this time of the year, that Hadfield also notes that warm nights are a feature of this month. He then goes on to talk a little bit about the thunderstorms and he notes that there have been some famous August thunderstorms. During one that broke on the 2nd in 1879, a peal of thunder was officially timed at Kew Observatory and found to last 20 minutes without a break. Penny would not have enjoyed that. And the landscape here 
is now taking on the look and feel of high summer. And the Signet is still doing really well and is now unmistakably a, a, a small miniature swan, slightly scruffy grey at the moment. And the whole family spend lots of time on the bank preening and washing and making themselves look spectacular. We were, oh, there's a rattle of beaks on the hull. I don't know if the microphone is picking them up. Had some late night duck foraging, <laughs> midnight feasting. Um, but as I was saying, we met up with the swans and signet much further up the canal as we were on our way down. And there, unmistakably, it was them. And we hadn't realised, in fact, some of the other boaters have been spotting them even further away. So we hadn't realised how big their territory was. But uh, they still remain during the day, at least, around this location. And the ducks and the ducklings are also doing really well. In fact, it's now very difficult to distinguish those that first batch of ducklings from the other adults, which is great. But we've all now placed a voluntary ban on feeding them. It's a bit of a shame as it is fun. And it's a, it's a nice way of just keeping tabs on particular families, particularly those that have ducklings. And they had regular scheduled route stops where they went from boat to boat. But we were worried about the increase of rats in the vicinity. There's quite a few brown rats around here, and I actually really like the rats, but they do cause problems, particularly with predation of eggs and even sometimes young chicks. And also they can do a lot of damage if they begin to nest on a boat, particularly with the electrics and things. And so we've decided to, at least for the summer, to stop feeding the ducks and that hopefully will then not attract more rats. I'm actually not too unhappy about the decision to stop feeding the ducks at this point. It's much better way of trying to control populations than using lethal measures. And also, I do get a little bit conflicted with feeding birds and animals particularly at times when there is a lot of other food, more natural food for them to have, as they can become very quickly dependent on being fed. And I'm particularly worried about the ducklings just being dependent and not necessarily learning the skills that they need to learn. And also the other aspect to this is that I'm always a little bit uncomfortable when I see birds or animals lose their fear of humans. They're obviously safe with us, but that unfortunately will not always be the case. And the other bit of news that I have is that one of the moorhen couples that live close by have just hatched some chicks and how anything so scrawny and threadbare looking can also be so almost unimaginably cute. It's difficult to believe, but 
uh, it's they're wonderful. I've I've only seen one at the moment, but I have been told that there were at least uh, a number of chicks. The problem is that they are so timid and flighty; it's difficult to to see them, particularly when I have Penny in tow with me, which I usually do. Thank you to everybody who got in contact with us and kept in contact with us while we were away. And I love hearing from you and what you're doing and what you have just seen or something that you've been involved with. So please feel free to just drop me a line either on social media. We've got the, the Facebook page and uh, on Twitter and Instagram or using the email nighttime on stillwaters at gmail.com and thank you particularly to Mark Stowe and Sarah Wally and Matthew Weagle Brusso so Matthew I, I'm really unsure about how you pronounce your names and I don't want to mispronounce them so please if I'm doing it wrong please please do tell me thank you also to those of you who wrote in to say that you were enjoying the summer readings episodes it was something that I was really in two minds about. Uh, even when I was actually recording them, it was, as I think I said at the time, I was scratching my head about whether to do something or just leave it for three weeks. And if I did do something, then what could I do? Because obviously I wouldn't be able to have the weather log or the journal entries, etc. So it was really a last minute idea that I had um, so it's not really well thought through or, or prepared and so it was kind of like spur of the moment thing um, but I, I'm glad that that some of you at least you know appreciated those episodes and and particularly our old friend Darlene Lisa Kettering sorry I think again when I mentioned you in the earlier episode I think probably about four weeks ago I got your name completely wrapped back to front didn't I I'm so sorry about that but I'm also really pleased that you managed to track down a copy of Temple Thurston's The Flower of Gloucester from the library over there in the States that's great and I I, I really hope you enjoy it and, I, and I'm sure that you will it's a, it's a beautiful piece of writing and it's really evocative and enjoyable it's one of those it's like dipping into a, a warm bath Another of our old-time friends, and one who's on the opposite coast to Arlene, is Olivia Marty. And she contacted me about a strange encounter that she had while watching herons whilst she was on an island just off the coast of Maine. And she had counted two groups of herons, one of seven and one of five. And what surprised her was that they were all flying out to sea just before sunset. And there was no apparent sandbanks or islands either for fishing or for roosting. And she also noted that although they're migratory, which is actually something I hadn't realised, and although most of the herons in the UK don't migrate, but she said that even though they, they do migrate, uh, it's not on one of their migratory routes or trails. So she just really noted that it was kind of a strange behaviour. And, and I then was kind of looking around and trying to read up a bit more on herons and really what was going on there. And 
I then realized something else which I hadn't understood about herons before. And that is that herons swim, which in a sense is kind of like pretty obvious. But I've always seen herons and herons being photographed standing, fishing. But actually, if you Google herons swimming, there's some wonderful videos of them swimming around and actually fishing while they swim. So I was just wondering whether perhaps if there was no trees inland or on the island suitable for roosting, perhaps they were going to sea to to kind of like roost, you know, for the night, um, swimming rather like you know seagulls, etc. I don't know, but if anybody else has got any other suggestions, I'd be really interested to hear from you. But but thanks, Olivia, for that. It's really um, I'm learning a lot more about herons than I previously uh, knew. Thank you. And speaking of old friends, and I have no idea whether they listen to the podcasts or not. But it was lovely to meet up with Pete from the Lena Kelly, as in Jackie and Pete and the little dog Pippa. And it was great to see them on the top half of the North Stratford Canal um, as we went past them. Um, Pete and Pippa were, were sitting outside and we could uh, have a shouted conversation as we passed by on Tickover. And it was lovely to hear from you, Pam, again. And I hope that you had a really lovely trip on the narrow boat that you said you were just about to go on and, and that the weather was, was good for you and that you enjoyed it. And thanks again for getting in contact with me. And I also just want to say a very, very quick hello to the, the usual suspects of Sharon and Wayne and Amanda and Vanessa and actually, I'm not too sure who else, but I know that you are planning to all meet at Braunston today uh, at lunchtime. And uh, you very kindly invited me along. And unfortunately, because of work commitments and things, I can't, couldn't make it. But uh, I hope you had a really lovely time and uh, meeting up together outside social media. And it's lovely when these interactions happen and friendships begin to develop beyond the screen. And also, can I just also say hi to Steve from the Narrowboat Blue Phoenix? Thank you so much for your um, message. I will get back to you. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'll leave it cryptically as that. And just uh, one more, finally, for, for, for this week. I just want to say hi to Pete Tuffrey, the artist Pete Tuffrey. He does some wonderful paintings. Um, and again, I'm not sure whether you'll be listening to this this week or not, Pete but I see that you've not been well recently. And I hope that you, you, know, you do look after yourself and I hope you're feeling better soon. Oh, and while I'm on my best wishes and everything, um, also to Hakama Pamela, Pamela Ennis, and who's just broken your leg. I'm so sorry. And I hope you're up and about very, very soon, Pam. As the year swings over the high point of high summer, the nights begin to draw in and darker skies become more evident in our lives again. And there is something about being in the night that I know we've explored in earlier episodes that creates an environment of reflection 
and also of being able to see things differently and perhaps even see things as they are. Night walking has a rich tradition, a rich literary tradition, from Defoe to Dickens to Rambo, and even to the millions of other nameless people who, through history, for one reason or another, found themselves on the streets and in the countryside at night. And Matthew Bowman's book, Night Walking, is an incredible study of this phenomena and is important in actually showing, first of all, how this practice from a socio-political perspective is so highly contested and at times contentious, but also drives culture and ideas. When I first began to think of this podcast, I'd always had the idea of reading some of Dickens's writing on his adventures or his encounters during his night walks. They, they make wonderful listening. And, and I will do that. But it also brought to mind my own experiences of it. And I think night walking and that whole arena of the night and being in the night and being able to reflect on things, it brought to mind a piece of writing that I wrote, it must now probably be 15 years ago. And it's much more abstract. And it's where I was 15 years ago. I think some of it works still, and some of it is perhaps not quite so effective. But it was at a time when my compass was spinning. The old certainties, the foundations and pillars that held up my world had either been shaken or some of them had just crumbled away. And really, it was a time where I was trying to not just find the world or understand the world, but more importantly for me at that point was, where do I fit in with it? Where do I find myself? How do I live in this world? And it's called Night Walking Infinitas. I lifted the latch and went out into the night to see what I could see and discover in the darkness what the darkness would disclose. And I went to the place where the air was heavy with moisture and dripped with the dewy sweetness of nighttime flowers and there the waters ran silently as dark as scriven as ink. Above me Cassiopeia and Cepheus danced their slow dance in the frozen silence, and Banbury Town stained the sky above Sunrising Hill with its amber glow. And as I stood, I listened for a voice, but none came, and there was no song upon the breezes of the night. And so, in the faint penumbra of my lamp, I turned my eyes to another lonely circle of light glinting in the world of darkness, 
Andromeda, riding high on the wings of Pegasus, its flaming glory traduced to a tiny blur diminished by unimaginable distance. Its light had taken 2.3 million light-years, the entire evolutionary span of humankind to reach me. Through what icy darkness had this speeding speck of light passed? This dim smudge that danced in the liminality of my vision contained the mass of one trillion stars in a whirling Catherine wheel of ferocious light. Each astral blazing furnace streaking outwards on its own path onto the ever expanding tidal edges of the universe. Just as we, on our spinning rock, Hurtling around our yellowing sun are also on a cosmic voyage into infinity. And that brief flash of our lifespans freezes this speeding moment into the illusion of timeless and motionless solidity. As if this is how things ever were and will ever be to come. The high-speed shutter of our perception captures the drop of milk exploding into the cup of tea, and to us that moment will last unchanging forever, while our children and then their children's children are born and live and die. And so, in that howling blackness of infinity, I lowered my lamp to the solid security of this world of grit and mud and stone. There, around my feet, glittered a spangle of starlight as dew-globes glistened in my lantern's light. A tiny, watery orb balanced and quivered on the whirled ridges of my fingertips. And as I looked closer, the world opened up, that world that makes up our world, where spinning electrons circle in wide-sweeping orbits around their nucleus in their infinitesimal universes. Solid became no longer solid. It was as if my hand should pass through the brute mass of the tree trunk beside me, as if it were a wisp of vapour and I found myself teetering on the precipice of another infinity, another eternity of space. If I were to fall, I would fall endlessly tumbling through fractal chaos, a kaleidoscope of complexity, a world no longer trapped by the rules of physics or even our minds. Our world, the world of rock and ice and fire, solid and unyielding, is made from a chaos of freedom, a reeling, floating enigma dancing in infinite space. A world of charm and strange, of coloured quarks, strange attractors and quantum entanglement. 
a space where the events upon which our worlds exists last for just a fraction of a chaotic second. But my perception is too slow to hold it, like an ancient oak that tries to glimpse a fork of lightning. And here I am, standing on the frail skin of this spinning globe, caught between two infinities, one above, one below. I am a being who is bound by time in a universe of eternities. Is it therefore not surprising that when I look up into the night sky, my heart hears the roar of eternity? And in this dark breathing night, I feel lost, adrift in this foaming vastness. Perhaps then it was for me, to whom Tehar de Chardin wrote, that the world had disclosed itself too vast. In which case, he was wrong. For I feel no desire to close my eyes and disappear, to crumble before the brute vastness of the universe. Its vastness affirms in me a singing, dancing energy that I am more than me and folds into its velvet blackness my heart's song of why. And it might be a bad reading of the Hebrew, but perhaps the NIV translator of Ecclesiastes 3.11 was right after all, that the divine has indeed set eternity in the hearts of men. If so, he reveals so much more of himself than he does of Koheleth's God. A mistranslation? Perhaps. But it was the one phrase that kept my faith in the Bible when everything else blew away like threshed chaff and clung in my mouth with the taste of death. And now, those words come back to me, resonating in my soul like a struck bell. I am a man locked into temporality and with eternity set, no, burning in my heart. Balanced on this thin line of time, stretched between eternal infinities. Is this why we look so longingly into the bowl of the night sky, for that which we have as yet to recognize? And is that why our hearts sometimes sing to us strange songs, and we yearn for that for which we have no words? And is this why? when I sit alone with the wind and the untamed things at an ancient place, that my eyes fill with water, and it feels as if my heart is about to break. 
And is this why the glow of amber fills me with hope? Or why the new buds of spring are so very potent? And is this why we repeatedly fail to come to terms with the concept of our death? Because, at heart, we are the children of infinity. Take care and find your joys in the night. This is the Narrowboat Erica, signing off for the night and wishing you a very good, restful and peaceful night. Good night. Temperature outside, 16.3 degrees. Inside, 21 degrees. Humidity, 74%. Dew point, 13 degrees. Wind direction, southwest. Wind strength, 16 miles per hour. Barometric pressure, 996.6, rising. Cloud cover, 76%. Cloud ceiling, 33,900 feet. Precipitation, 1.27 millimeters. Moon phase, 0.5%. Waning crescent. Day length, 15 hours, 8 minutes. Sunset, 2045. Skycasting, 539.